Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. You caught us dancing over here. We weren't doing that. No, that didn't happen. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time joining us, is a live broadcast which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. We love the Bible. We love the Word. We believe it is the Word of God. And we love you. And we love, that's right. <laughs> we love you. We love the Word. And we'd like to connect the two together over the next hour. That's what we're here to do. So you can send in any question you have on the Bible through multiple online platforms. I'll be going over those in just a moment, just so you know the different ways that you can uh, be joining us. But send in your question, maybe a verse or passage of scripture you'd like explained. Maybe you're going through something in your life and you'd like to, to uh, honor the Lord. You'd like uh, to know what the Bible says about uh, your circumstances. Uh, maybe even just Christianity as a whole. Maybe you're a seeker and have questions about what the Bible says about certain things. Um, worldviews, other religions, even anything along those lines. As long as it's an honest question, we appreciate that, the honest and sincere questions. And as long as you know that the Bible is where we find the answers, we don't want to give you our opinion or take, but as accurately as we can, with the Lord's help, we want to give you what the Word says um, to help you along with that. So that's what we're here to do on A Reason for Hope. My name's Dave Robson. I'll be on all those uh, platforms with you. As your questions come on in with us today on this Thursday, what is it, November 16th, we have Pastor Scott Richards, who's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're broadcasting from. Good to see you. Good to be seen. Yes. You doing yeah. well? Oh, I'm doing great. And just uh, chomping at the bit as far as uh, prophetic updates and, and calls to prayer and such. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. I'm sure you'll be getting some going on. little update. I keep saying the word little. I don't know why I throw that in. It's not really little, but an update. <laughs> These habits I have. <laughs> when you go live every day and you see yourself recorded, you, you figure out these little habits that you have. I don't know if you had that experience too. You watch yourself and hear yourself. You're like, I have the habits of doing and saying certain things. And then you get very self-conscious and then you just have to carry on, I guess. But You know, there's a group called Toastmasters that teaches people how to do speeches. Mm. And they have little bells that they give to everybody. And every time you say, um, or er, yeah. they ring the ding, bell. Ding, 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 yes. And you learn in a hurry not to say um or right. er. Yeah. <laughs> or in the case of Peter and I, when we were learning to speak, a T-E-M-P-S unit. Oh, really? Look that up. Okay, I will. I'm intrigued. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Reliving those memories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do that for Shocking. a moment while I do the rest of my intro over here. <laughs> That's a hint, by the way. Yeah. Thank you both for being here. We appreciate you. And we appreciate you, the viewer, as well. As I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. If you're in the Tucson area and would like to come and check our church out here, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you're more than welcome. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway. You can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and find more information there, or certainly reach out with any questions that you have. Uh, but we stream to our website. That's a great home base for you, especially if you're someone that doesn't have social media or if you're uh, wandering away from social media. A lot of people seem to be doing that. But for whatever reason, calvarychristianfellowship.com is a great place to go. That Watch Live tab right there, if you follow that link, it will take you to ccftucson.online.church. You can type that right into your browser as well if you'd rather. ccftucson.online.church. Take it to the same place. We're streaming live there. You'll see the video. You can sign in with a username, and then there's a chat function that you can interact with us during the show and send in your Bible questions. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to the next time we'll be online, and you'll see a schedule of upcoming events as well. So we stream 
uh, our uh, services to this page as well and uh, other events that we have and of course a reason for hope monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m we're on facebook as well live facebook.com slash ccf tucson or just look for calvary christian fellowship of tucson on facebook don't forget to like and share we'd appreciate that and send your question in through the chat function we'll be receiving that loud and clear lord willing as well we have an app for your mobile device once again calvary christian fellowship of tucson in your app store look for that red background with the white calvary chapel dove logo that's us download that and you can watch us on your cell phone there's also past messages and um, other things on our app that you can mess around with as well we're on roku and apple tv as well we have a channel so in your channel store at calvary christian fellowship of tucson you can watch us on your big screen if you have roku and uh, apple tv we're on youtube live as well a reason for hope is the name of the channel on youtube it's a great place for archives if you go to that live tab anytime we've been live it archives right there so if you missed the show you want to recap one of the questions that we covered I've been uh, doing better at putting the questions up on the screen as we go along so you can scrub through the video uh, to find a specific question as well. So if you would like to use that for your own study, you certainly can. We'd like that to be a resource uh, for you. And on YouTube as well, don't forget to, to like and subscribe and the notification bell, click on that, you'll get a little um, notification when we upload something or when we're live and that kind of good stuff too. So a reason for hope on YouTube. Pastor Scott here is on Twitter. Scott R4H is his handle. Scott letter R, number four, letter H, where he posts um, commentary on things uh, going on and going along in the world. Of course, so much going on right now um, as it pertains to Israel and the Middle East. Um, so it's quite a hotbed of activity on Twitter. So you can follow along with him to get those updates. Scott R4H on Twitter. We're on the Rumble platform as well, not live, but we post video content there. Uh, a reason for hope bible q a on rumble if you are on the rumble platform and then our email address questions for hope at gmail.com should you wish to send us an email or send your question in that way questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com welcome if you listen to us on the radio we're glad you're tuning in drive safe if you're on your drive time out there keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you on the radio or there's other aforementioned platforms we are live uh, but you can use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to your question on the next show. So again, we're very glad that you join us wherever you are. Join us around the world, whatever platform you're on. Send your questions in. We'd love to get to those later on the show after a bit of an update from Pastor Scott here. But before all of that, why don't we pray? Sean, would you like to pray today? Right. I've heard you like to do that. Uh, right, Dave, That's true. the rumor, yes. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We know we don't have anything to offer if it's not first received from your spirit, so that's what we're mm. asking for. Allow him to speak freely and to honor your name as you sent him out to do, and if we have the honor of being a part of that process, let it be on the basis of mercy and so that you would accomplish what you see fit through our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, let us have it. Well, uh, talk about letting, letting us have it. Uh, we really need to be in prayer for what's going on in Israel right now. We have unconfirmed reports, but from a reliable source. We want to get confirmation on this because we can't be 100% certain that this is what's happening, happening on the ground. We wanted to pass it along to you for the purpose of prayer. Unconfirmed reports from a member of the Gavadi Brigade that, uh, it, that one of the... Uh, leading special forces brigades in the Israeli army, 
that hostages have been found in the underground tunnel system uh, that is underneath Gaza. They have located the uh, position of the hostages. Mm-hmm. And there is a fierce firefight taking place right now associated mm-hmm. with the liberation of these hostages. Again, uh, the uh, source of these reports uh, is tends to be uh, a pretty solid one, but until we hear any kind of confirmation uh, from the IDF itself, uh, we can only pass this along as a, um, a well-founded uh, rumor, but a rumor nonetheless. Uh, the reason that we are sharing this with you is that uh, along with the report that the hostages and the position of the hostage have been found, and that would tend to make sense because uh, with the uh, taking out of the Al-Shifa hospital uh, and the uh, central nature of that complex as far as being a command and control center for Hamas and their terrorist uh, enterprises, a number of computers were seized. In fact, uh, there were uh, there was a number of uh, excavations made around the hospital that uncovered terror tunnels, part of the 300-plus-mile uh, terror network that Hamas has constructed. And it would stand reason that uh, if these computers were not uh, completely uh, uh, wiped out, as far as their data is concerned, uh, that some pretty significant intelligence would still be available. Uh, It does appear uh, from the reports that we're getting, again, unconfirmed, but reports that we're getting, that uh, the location of the hostages has been determined and uh, that a firefight uh, with their lives in the balance is taking place here. Uh, the uh, main request from this person sending it along from the Gavadi Brigade is that uh, people that got this message would devote themselves to prayer. And so uh, before we go any further uh, on a prophecy update, I think it'd be very, very good for us to take a moment and pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father, we come before you and we would ask, Lord, uh, that half a world away, we don't know exactly what's going on, but you do. And Lord, you know that uh, the fate of these hostages, uh, over 240 of them, uh, 30 Americans among them, Lord, we bring them to you. And we ask, Lord, that you supernaturally would preserve their lives as much as possible uh, and even what might not be possible from a human uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lord, that you would protect these IDF soldiers as they fight against these purveyors of violence and these purveyors of a false doctrine spiritually uh, that has poisoned the minds even of 10-year-olds to take up weapons and shoot innocent people. Uh, Lord, uh, the battle for hearts and minds and souls is going on as well. So, Lord, we would ask that, uh, if possible, uh, you would uh, intervene, protect the lives of these uh, brave IDF soldiers uh, and the Gavadi Brigade that are engaging uh, perhaps at this time. And even if they are not, even if this is a uh, rumor, Lord, you know that uh, we can pray for the welfare of these hostages. We can pray that you would protect the uh, sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are laying their lives on the line to uh, provide security and peace and a a rebuke to those who've dedicated themselves to the extermination of other people, the the bottom line. We pray, Father, that these uh, Palestinians, even maybe the the most committed dead-enders in Hamas, uh, would have a radical encounter with you and that they would turn from this murderous 
a religious philosophy and the following of a false prophet to having a genuine relationship with you, the true and living God through Jesus who died for them and even uh, the most gross and heinous sins uh, they have committed that you can forgive them because your son paid the price for all those sins on the cross. Lord, we pray that there would be a tremendous victory. We pray, Father, that we would hear uh, of how you've manifested your glory among your people. And Father, we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And again, um, keeping an, an eye on the, uh, the source uh, that we heard uh, these reports from. Haven't gotten anything right before airtime, but we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, another interesting in update that we wanted to pass along to you uh, is uh, there, there's so much confusion, I think, in the minds of people as to how things got into the situation they are in Israel right now, on, on both sides of the, the occasion. It, it does seem that uh, the October 7th uh, attack uh, was violent, uh, was brutal, but was very effective as far as it went uh, for like two days. And then it was almost like, well, now what do we do? Uh, it, it doesn't seem like the Palestinians had any idea of an end game here. The other side of uh, the, the issue that uh, continually comes up is uh, this notion, uh, okay, uh, Israel has, you know, this top flight intelligence apparatus and, uh, you know, Israel uh, is, uh, you know, again, used to dealing with terrorist threats around them. How did they get caught so flat-footed uh, in a situation like this? Well, uh, earlier today, I read an analysis on the PJ Media side. It was written by Richard Fernandez at his Belmont Club uh, 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 blog spot. Uh, and I think this goes, at least for me, uh, just an incredibly long way in providing clarity about what, what happened. Uh, why did the Palestinians behave the way they did? Uh, why did Israel get caught so flat-footed? Why is uh, Hamas on the edge of extermination right now? Certainly things that were unforeseen on both sides. Well, it goes back into an uh, article that was written in 2012 by Ger Laish, who is a former head of the Israeli Air Force Warfare Planning Department. He believed that Hamas had a grand strategy, which he called, quote, a stable situation of ongoing limited confrontation that deliberately avoided provoking what he called the Amorite iniquity effect. Now, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 15. You might recall that in Genesis chapter 15, God appeared to Abraham. He uh, solidified, solemnized the covenant that he made with Abraham, the famous uh, apparition of the smoking furnace passing between uh, the pieces of, uh, of the, uh, the sacrifice that Abraham had laid out. God then gave Abraham a uh, vision that uh, he was not to immediately wipe out those that were in the land, the Canaanites that were there. Uh, the catch-all for them was the Amorites because the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet been fulfilled and that there would be another 400 years that God would give these Canaanites to turn from their sins and then God would deal with them. Again, when Joshua would come into the land, they would be cleared out. Uh, so 
this reference in Gurlayesh's uh, analysis about the Amorite iniquity effect is really fascinating, not just because of its biblical overtones, but because the insight that they provide. He said, uh, again, uh, the Genesis 15 Amorite iniquity effect uh, mentions a now vanquished people called the Amorites who would escape retribution until its iniquities had reached a critical level. Once the iniquity level got too bad, it would provoke a reaction that would destroy them. The metaphor as applied to Hamas suggested that it would be in their self-interest to remain a murderous nuisance, but the survival instinct would dissuade it from going too far lest they share the fate of the Amorites. Uh, Again, Laish described the tension between the means available and the proclaimed ends as both sides contenting themselves with chronic failure. In other words, Israel wasn't going to wipe out Hamas in Gaza, uh, despite the fact that they would regularly lob missiles and try to do minor terroristic uh, events uh, in Israel uh, because they thought they could maintain sort of a status quo. Things had not gotten to the point it was so bad that Israel had to invest not only the resources, not only the risk of lives, not only the uh, possibility of uh, being uh, considered a pariah state on the world stage, that Israel wasn't going to do that, that what Hamas was doing was, in a sense, blowing off steam, maintaining their power in the Gaza Strip by saying, look, we're attacking the infidels and so on, but uh, not so much that it would provoke an overwhelming response. Here's what Laish had to say. Hamas had set itself the principal objective of terminating the existence of the state of Israel. That is in the Hamas charter. The strategy chosen by Hamas in order to attain its pretentious principal objective is that of resistance or mukamawa in Arabic. The inherent problem is in the strategy of resistance uh, can be thus discerned. It can succeed as long as it's not too successful. If it's too successful, it fails. Now, see if you can follow here. To a Western observer, a strategy of resistance appears to be pointless, and it may be expected that it would be abandoned. It well matches the approach of Hamas that attaches value to its very resistance. The fact that a situation is likely in which both parties are satisfied with their own strategies is what permits the existence of a limited ongoing confrontation the price for which is being paid by both parties who are not getting any closer to a, to a situation of peace or resolution. From Israel's perspective, Hamas's strategy compels it to absorb what it regards as a tolerable level of terrorism, although Israel would prefer total quiet on its borders, but one that permits it to make progress toward its national ends of social and economic development. Now, this article then captures the reason for the IDF's October 7th failure and Hamas's subsequent downfall. The Israelis, catch this, never expected Hamas to do something as irrational as provoke the full force of Jerusalem's retaliation. Hamas, for its part, never rationally prepared for the retribution they should have known would follow. Uh, The mistake of Hamas's enemies and its disappointed allies was to assume the decision makers would be sane. Dan Hanan, writing in the Washington Examiner, is considering the possibility the antagonists in the Arab-Israeli conflict might actually be irrational. Now, we've mentioned this a number of times. One of the uh, continued errors 
that we make on this side of the pond, that we make in the non-Islamic world, uh, the secularized, humanistically-based government, say the United States or the EU, is that we assume they share our same mindset, uh, that they have the same uh, ultimate goals, that they want to uh, have prosperity, they want to have a nice upbringing for their children, they want to have something to leave to their children after they pass on, uh, they, they basically want peace. But that assumes that they're coming from this Western mindset. Mm -hmm. It does not assume that they're coming from an Islamic mindset, mm -hmm. which has as its ultimate goal, not just the extermination of Israel and uh, the anti-Semitism inherent in the Quran uh, is absolutely impossible to miss, but also their dreams and their ambition of fulfilling their prophet's vision, if you will, of a worldwide caliphate where all bend the knee to Islam, where all are under Sharia uh, or uh, are made to pay the jizya or are beheaded as infidels. Uh, fascinating statement in uh, uh, Dan Hannon's article in the Washington Examiner. He said this, I thought has been warming my way uncomfortably through my mind since October 7th. What if peace is impossible? Mm. What if there's literally no way to reach a lasting accord? What if one side will settle for nothing less than the destruction of the other? My doubts began in the immediate aftermath of the atrocity as I watched the reactions of some Palestinians and some of their sympathizers, not least in the West. On that dreadful Saturday evening, there had yet been no Israeli response. Protesters did not have the perfectly reasonable argument that the participants in later demonstrations had, namely that they were defending human rights in Gaza. No, this was exultation in the murder of Israel, Israelis, pure and simple. Now, a world accustomed to Hollywood happy endings can't easily accept the fact that nothing in history pro prohibits tragedy. Nothing says political actors have to act rationally, but neither does anything guarantee that crazy lasts forever. The Amorites, for instance, are gone. Set against this is the strange fact that truth and beauty somehow never die out, but by some process, tragedy never has the last word. Hope lives, though it may take a long time to come true. So, you know, again, uh, what uh, Mr. Fernandez is saying in his Belmont Club article quite simply is this. Terrorism only succeeds when it fails. Mm -hmm. In other words, what kept Hamas in business was this tit-for-tat, launch a rocket, hide, run away to fight another day right. sort of approach. Kill a few Israelis, but a negligible amount that would make Israel say, well, you know, this doesn't really constitute a full-blown invasion of Gaza. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other side is this. Uh, terrorism not only only succeeds when it fails. Uh, ha Hamas was fine in terms of holding on to power uh, as long as it never achieved its goal, that is, of taking the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the, uh, the Temple Mount, to taking Jerusalem, putting it back under Islamic hands. Yeah. As long as that never happened, as long as they were just sort of playing resistance, if you will, with mm. live fire and people dying and so forth, suicide bombings and, and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. then terrorism succeeded as long as it failed. Mm. Uh, they got a lot of money. Uh, Ishmael Haniyeh uh, lives the high life as a billionaire in a high rise in gutter, as well as the other three billionaires who run Hamas. Worked out great for them, yeah. right? But Terrorism 
fails when it succeeds. Mm. In, in, in other words, what happened on October 7th uh, went wildly beyond the uh, dreams of any of the leadership of Hamas. Mm. This idea that there would be no Israel to stand in the way of this kind of invasion, uh, this kind of brutalizing of their own citizens. And this explains something else that, that has always baffled me. Why wasn't Israel more prepared? Mm. You know, I mean, the tinfoil hat, uh, neo-Nazi conspiracy theories, well, you know, that Benjamin Netanyahu was setting him up, and he let all this happen because, you know, he wanted to, you know, have an excuse to go in and, and brutalize those poor Palestinians and st such. And, and some even who call themselves Christian commentators, uh, some more mainstream than I'm comfortable with, throw out these kind of ideas. But why wasn't Israel prepared? Because Israel realized that based upon their never stated but mutually agreed upon uh, Cold War, if you will, that occasionally had little hot patches to it, they never really had to worry about Hamas mm -hmm. doing something really radical. Why? Because they knew that would be suicide for Hamas. Mm -hmm. And they would realize that Hamas doesn't want to commit suicide. Unless, of course, you look at this through the lens of Islam. You know, they got too fired up. Yeah. They may have, you know, I mean, some people believe that they thought, well, Iran is going to come to our aid and this will be, you know, their call as our Islamic brothers to uh, use their mighty forces to attack Israel. They will turn loose Hezbollah. Why has Hassan Nasrallah made these very wimpy uh, statements, you know? And said, well, you know, we, we still hate the Jews, you know, but, uh, well, uh, uh, God bless those martyrs down there, but, uh, oh, yeah, we're going to fire a few anti-tank weapons across the border. Israel will summarily come in and bomb the living daylights out of anybody who does it. But we're not seeing anything uh, on the Syrian front, on the front of Hezbollah, on the front of Iran there, why? Because they are still operating under that mentality that terrorism succeeds when it fails, and it fails when it succeeds. Until, of course, Iran gets to the place where they believe that they can succeed fully, uh, I believe that threshold will be crossed when they achieve nuclear status. And uh, the IAEA today had this cheery note, uh, the rate of nuclear enrichment of uh, uranium to weapons grade has increased 22 times over the last three months. So they're very, very diligent about doing this. Yeah. The thing that I think has kept Iran from getting giddy and turning their forces loose is the fact that you've got the USS Gerald Ford and the USS Dwight Eisenhower and submarines that are able to dispatch uh, nuclear capable uh, drones yeah. and, uh, and cruise missiles and so forth in that region. Mm. Uh, it is communicated to them that if you violate this rule, yeah. you know, if you succeed in your dream to attack Israel, you're gonna fail like nobody's business. Yeah. So if you wanna understand what's going on here and how all these things are playing out, that ironic, uh, almost counterintuitive conundrum that terrorism succeeds when it fails and fails when it succeeds. Yeah. 
because you know once again um gaza took over or i should say hamas took over gaza in a terroristic event uh they they had an election they got voted into office and they immediately got into a bloody civil war with fatah the ones that run the west bank right so they succeeded but then they had to govern well they weren't in the business of governing mm. They're in the business of turning Gaza into a weapons platform to attack Israel. Mm. And as a result, uh, you know, we're seeing more and more coming out through the cracks. Uh, the average rank and file person in Gaza saying we hate Hamas and they don't care about us. And uh, Israel's being better to us than Hamas ever was. Mm. Well, you know, we can take that with a grain of salt because other surveys still say that roughly 60% of people in Gaza, one survey done today, uh, still say that Gaza was right to attack uh, Israel the way they did on October 7th and that they should, if they had the chance to do it all again, they should do it all again. I don't know if those numbers are going to go down the more they're absorbing the incredible destruction that came from the decision they made to attack. So uh, again, things are, uh, are heating up in this region, but Israel does seem to understand uh, the nature of things now, the fact that uh, the previous uh, unspoken relationship they had with, with Hamas has been utterly broken. Uh, Hamas has to be wiped out. There's no uh, turning back from all that. Even the British Parliament voted nearly two to one to support the idea of not calling for a ceasefire under this set of circumstances. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant was quoted as saying, this enemy only understands power and we will explain it to them very well what power really is. Uh, they're, not, they're not kidding there. Now, there's some saber rattling going on, obviously. Uh, before airtime, uh, the uh, lovely and uh, talented uh, uh, President Erdogan of uh, Turkey came out uh, with a statement that, uh, well, has caused some people to scratch their heads a bit. He said this, hey, Israel, you have a nuclear bomb and you're threatening with this. We know this. Your end is near. Whether you have nuclear weapons or not, you are on your way out. So, you know, is he playing to his crowd you know, uh, kind of ginning up the fact that, uh, well, you can't count on these Iranians. Uh, they fell asleep at the switch, but I'm the guy. Mm -hmm. I'm Israel's number one enemy now. Great way to hold on to power in Islamic right. setting is to set yourself up as the number one uncontested enemy of the Jews. Mm -hmm. It does appear that uh, Recep Erdogan uh, is vying for that title. And it tells me another thing. Uh, although Turkey still is a NATO member, uh, Turkey was rejected from membership in the EU because of some longstanding historical uh, gripes that people had with the Turks. Uh, read uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire and so forth as far as whether those were valid or not, I think they were. Uh, but uh, instead of joining the West, he saw they couldn't join the West, so he's got to turn East. He's got to be the kingpin uh, in Islam. Very interesting, though, uh, Erdogan and Turkey are absolutely dependent upon Israel's new gas discoveries to supply their energy needs. So is he just fun in here? Is he just playing to the crowd? Quite possibly. 
But uh, when politicians start using the N-word, that is, they start talking in terms of nuclear capabilities, uh, we know things are really hopping over there. So uh, we will try to keep you apprised of any developments that we find, any confirmations that uh, a battle is going on to free the hostages at this particular point. I would be surprised if more came out than just uh, those kind of snippets at this point, because why would you want to communicate to your enemy what your strategy is and where you're concentrating your efforts? Right. Um, you know, we just need to pray that the hostages end up being uh, safely delivered. We need to pray for the safety of the IDF. We need to pray uh, that uh, this horrific terroristic group that is motivated not by pragmatism, but by their spiritual convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not rational actors as we would understand them. Uh, and uh, very interesting stuff as well. A uh, bunch of demonstrators in Sweden. Now at the latest humongous, huge pro-Hamas rally have said that unless Sweden pushes Israel for a ceasefire, they will declare an intifada in Sweden and across Europe. Now an intifada, another name for an uprising, is another way for saying suicide bombers and terroristic acts and so on. Europe let these people in without vetting them, uh, without fully understanding what their theology is all about mm -hmm. because they don't have a theology really anymore in Europe. They're secularists. Just assume they were secularists like them. Uh, we could see some very interesting developments coming out of all of this. Yeah. So pray, pray, pray for Israel. Pray for wisdom from our leaders. Pray that uh, these bad actors uh, who are very sincere in terms of wanting to walk according to the tenets of their faith, but sincerely wrong, uh, are not gonna be able to succeed in what they wanna do. Mm. Any thoughts? Well, let's get to the questions. Okay. Yeah, thanks for keeping us updated with that. Definitely calls for prayer, very sobering. We appreciate it. Yeah, your questions, please uh, do. If you have Bible questions, send them on in. We have some time left here on our show. We'd uh, love to tackle your Bible questions. We have one coming from La, L-A-R, La going to go with it is the holy spirit a feeling like a tingling tingling sensation i was at church and i felt the holy spirit is that what the holy spirit is a feeling or no is it and there's no example of it being verified through feelings in scripture so when mm -hmm. we're talking about what is and isn't true about god or an experience with god it always needs to come back to first thessalonians 5 19 through 21 don't despise prophecies another spiritual gift of many but experiences with God can fit into those things. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. When people confuse God with a feeling, it's all centered around the idea that God exists to stimulate my nerve endings. It's mm -hmm. a part of a philosophy called hedonism that good things are determined by good feelings. The old song and adage, it can't be wrong because it feels so right. That's not biblical. When in, in fact, leadings of the Holy Spirit, as we see in the life of Jesus, led to very bad feelings, hunger, in fact. If you read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter four, right after his baptism from John, where did the Spirit lead Jesus to go? In the wilderness, yeah. to fast for 40 days, and afterwards he was hungry. Well, hunger, and I wouldn't understand it as much as many other people outside of the West, especially outside the United States. But hunger is generally not a good feeling. In fact, it's an intentionally bad feeling that is intended to remind you you to need eat. to eat something. Yeah. So if the Holy Spirit, in a legitimate encounter with God, 
the Spirit acting upon God the Son to subject himself to negative feelings throws this philosophy that good feelings equals God out the window. If we ask ourselves, okay, well, what about ultimate purposes in life? You have to know the greatest calling from God is going to be something that feels really good. Once again, going back to Jesus of Nazareth, when he was praying in the garden for the strength to fulfill the purpose for which he was sent, it was what? Crucifixion. And in preparation for that, as the Spirit was giving him the strength to do these things, as the author of Hebrews says, what was his feeling in the midst of that? Hematodrosis, which for those of you who don't uh, read medical books in your spare time, is the condition of your stress levels being so high that your blood capillaries burst Mm -hmm. and you start sweating blood. It's an actual medical condition. Stress is not a good feeling, yet it was something the Holy Spirit led him into and through in order to demonstrate just how serious something was. Now, when people get saved, this is usually when they associate with the good feelings, some people can describe experiences. Others don't. And the question is, was their salvation experience illegitimate because it wasn't like mine? Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to another salvation experience in the book of Acts, chapter 1, where at Pentecost, I believe uh, chapter 1, they were praying, and the Spirit came upon them and manifested as what? Emotions? No, something visual. Tongues of fire and equipping them with the spiritual gifts to accomplish Acts Acts 2. That's why I thought I was wondering. Well, I remember Peter's sermon was in that moment. But anyway, Mm. Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire and the equipping of a spiritual gift, the gift of tongues, as well as the interpretation given to the non-believers. They knew their tongues and dialects. They were able to understand what God had done, and it was being communicated to them in a supernatural way. Mm. Then they went on to verify that the spiritual gift with its intended purpose to glorify God, to honor his word. So when we're talking about different experiences, emotional, physical, visual, personal, they aren't copy and paste across everyone's, you know, personal uh, encounter with God. If we're going to demand of God, I want you to give me good feelings, or even more commonly, I want you to take these bad feelings away, otherwise I have no reason to believe God is with me right now, is setting yourself up for failure because it's in direct contradiction with what Jesus himself demonstrated in the perfect Christian life, being Christ and all. So make sure that when we understand feelings are kind of like the human experience of dessert, they're great when they come around. Maybe if you have the opportunity and lifestyle to support them calorie-wise, you can indulge in them regularly, but they come and go where appropriate. If they become the only intake and output of your spiritual experience, it's much like a person whose only input and output is a dairy queen. You're going to be a very poor physical specimen. Likewise, the person who says, I can only feel close to God if I feel like it. Well, that's going to show a very fragile spiritual constitution because that's not A, what Jesus demonstrated, B, what Scripture, the Holy Spirit explained, or C, what the Father would have for you. There are times where we need to grow up. In the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter 3 or 4, Solomon begins the chapter with an observation. There's a time for rejoicing and a time for grieving. So if we understand feelings aren't the metric for how I feel close to God, how I feel saved, how I feel anything good, 
good feelings are just that, good feelings. But good facts is based on how we receive the Holy Spirit, and that's what? Romans chapter 10, 9 through 10, quoting Joel 2, by the way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm -hmm. You will be saved, not you'll feel this certain thing, and by that you'll know you're saved. That's Mormonism. We want to believe the Bible. And in the Bible, we see there is a place for bad feelings and legitimate pursuit of God, and also good feelings that were a sign of people in idolatry, <laughs> that they weren't any closer to God based on these good feelings because it was just the way that things were going. Jeremiah said, well, I feel good because this temple is here. Don't trust in lying vanities. Don't trust in your feelings to be your metric with your walk with God or your standing with God because they can be easily, easily manipulated. Right. Yeah. Anything to well, add? yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think we we have to one once again kind of uh, split the difference as far as feelings and our yeah. relationship with God. God gave us the capacity to be able to feel. Mm -hmm. uh, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control, and so mm -hmm. on. Now, notice a couple of these things do constitute feelings. Joy is a feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, peace is. Uh, a feeling. It's not only conviction, it's, it's an emotional response. It would be very odd if a relationship with God didn't affect our feelings. Yeah. You know, sometimes even skeptics will try to turn that around and say, oh, well, you know, your sky daddy uh, up there just makes you feel better, and that's yeah. why you're a Christian. Right. Well, A, it would be really strange if a genuine relationship with my creator didn't have some beneficial psychological effects, mm. in, in a sense, that does make me feel better. Yeah. But we need to understand something, you know, and I think Sean articulated it well. Feelings are great when they, they come, but they're not a foundation. Mm -hmm. And if we make feelings our foundation, our walk with God, uh, like we would with any other relationship, you know, uh, you know, there's so many people that I've ended up counseling whose marriages have fallen apart uh, because they say in the words of the immortal song writer Gordon Lightfoot, I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone and I can't, just can't get it back. Yeah. Um, if you get married to somebody because of a feeling, well, that relationship is destined, I think, to fail. Yeah. Because sooner or later, those feelings, trying to keep the emotional high of courtship all the time, mm -hmm. or saying, oh, my goodness, you know, I don't have that feeling anymore. Uh, therefore, I need to go on to another relationship where I can have that feeling again. Well, once again, that's not love. That's narcissism. That's mm -hmm. just plain uh, people for, uh, you know, again, channels that can, can cause us to feel certain things in life. You know, very interesting, uh, when we talk about our relationship, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then joy, peace, patience, and so on flow out of that. Well, how does the Bible define love? Uh, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, listen to this, and, and listen not just for what it says, but for what it doesn't say. Uh, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, nowhere in that, that description of love do we find the word, love feels like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're really experiencing the love of God, you will feel this way. Uh, doesn't mean that you won't experience 
joy in your walk with God. It doesn't mean that you won't have supernatural experiences where God gives you maybe a, a brief preview uh, of, of heaven. Uh, Nehemiah said this, you know, again, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, I think having those experiences can be a good thing, but we have to put it in its proper perspective. Yeah. Just like any other relationship, if it's based on feelings, it's destined to fail. Right, right. And uh, just as another side note, speaking from frequent experience, if someone tries to shame you and say, you're not being very loving Christian because you're making people feel bad, it's not what the Bible means by love in any stretch of the imagination. Hmm. Yeah, very good. Feelings are great. Yep. I've, I know I've, I've felt God, you know, in worship. I've felt his love and nearness and peace and stuff. But sure. like you say, not something to base uh, evidence of his nearness on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing I've discovered is, you know, I'll be in one of our worship services here and, and I'll just be moved to tears by the, the, the nearness and the closeness of God right. that, that I feel. But I always realize something. I got to go out those double doors and live in the real world yeah. after this is all done. <laughs> and Tucson traffic. So what, you know, how is this going to help me in this respect? Well, God communicating to me in a personal way that he loves me. But if it brings me back to centering my life on his truth, then I've got something that's durable. Yeah. Something, something that is going right. to last. Yeah. So. Amen. Great. Well, great yeah. question. Hope that helps you out. Thank you for it. Question from Yari. Um, if God is for us, who can be against us? <clears throat> uh, he says, but a cousin uh, told me that you can be against yourself and lose your salvation. Is this true? So can you kind of will unless, your own salvation unless you're, out. Unless you're bigger than God. Yeah, uh, two <laughs> yeah. ways we can go about that. One's blasphemous and the other's wrong, which is just <laughs> which is worse. <laughs> so, and again, you did more reading on Romans 8 than I've done in my lifetime, so I'll pass the majority of this question off to you. But let's just take this piecemeal. If in the best possible light, what this is saying is not that, you know, if you are you and you in opposition to God is the reason why you lost your salvation. What they're trying to argue is what scripture also dictates not to take your salvation for granted and of course not to neglect the opportunity that you have to pursue God today. That today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. That your decisions are the final obstacle between you and an eternal relationship with God speaking to a non-believer and someone who has the opportunity to choose God that day, that if what they mean by that, what your cousin means by that, Yari, is the idea that, okay, you have the opportunity to be you or to bow the knee and understand God is God, whether or not you would prefer that role in your life, to say that without a Savior, I am still in need of saving that the obstacle between me and God is myself, I would say there is some merit to that, but it ends up caricaturing, and I mean like making a cartoony, not in-depth, but a more uh, too nuanced to be made sense of, kind of a meme format or TikTok-ish way of presenting a more complicated issue than it seems. The idea of the fact God has set before us life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that you may live. Mm. But you can also choose death, therefore you're the problem here, I'm the solution. Okay, I get that. 
But if on the other stat, the blasphemy stat, that you say, okay, well, I read Romans chapter 8, 31 through 32 as a hypothetical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And it doesn't go in the next sentence to say, well, there's the devil, and there's you, and there's the world, and there's the stock market, and there's your emotions, and your circumstances, and your bank account. No, it says what? Another example. If he did not freely give him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? To handle this passage that's focusing on Jesus and bring it back to you is not only narcissistic, but it's missing the point. What then is the error here? Well, it would be about the same rational handling of Scripture as me reading Romans 8.1 and finding condemnation in it. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And since I'm not in Christ Jesus, therefore, there is only condemnation for me. Not the point. So if we're going to handle Romans 8 and, well, yeah, just Romans 8 uh, consistently, what should we consider the focus of the conversation, not following a rabbit trail that brings us into a borderline cult mindset. You know, I'm really glad that you put it that way because this is a a real easy mistake to make, and sometimes we do make it, uh, especially early on in our walk with God or if we're under some bad teaching. You know, we look at something and then we said, yeah, but what about this? And we go off on a philosophical rabbit trail uh, and we fail to read the next scripture. Mm. Uh, Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32, I love it. Uh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? Well, somebody who takes a step in and go, well, but it doesn't say that I can't be against me. Well, A, like you pointed out, Sean, that uh, hypothetical is not anywhere in the text. As a matter of fact, the next verses absolutely destroy that hypothetical if we allow our mind to be renewed on these next verses what does it say it says uh you know again uh, who is he who condemns it is god who justifies who is he uh again uh let, let me start over you know again romans chapter 8 verse get 32 the flow of the let, let me get my my <laughs> get memory thing rolling here uh you know if god is for us who will be against us if he didn't spare his only son how will he not freely give us all the things who is he condemns? It is God who justifies. Uh, who is he, uh, you know, who, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is Christ Jesus who died, furthermore is risen, who is seated at the right hand of God, will also make intercession for us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, which includes us, we're created things, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of looking at, you know, and I think this may be the the essence of it. You know, when I look at me, right, uh, as the basis of my relationship with God, man, any kind of assurance and peace goes out the window. Why? Because sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong. And then my brain starts working. I go, God's perfect, and he has to judge sin, and I got sin in my life, so God must judge me. And, and, and I completely forget the awesome price that God paid 
to forgive my sins. But when I come back and I look at the person of Jesus Christ, well, then I go, well, that's silly. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that my decisions or my errors are greater than the sacrifice of the, the cross of Christ. I would not, I would not want to say to Jesus, for instance, uh, come up to him while he's suffering and dying for me on the cross. Well, Lord, that's really good, but I'm such a big sinner. I don't even, I, I don't think what you're doing here can help me. Yeah. I would never say that, right? Right? Would you? No. No. <laughs> uh, so uh, when we get into these hypotheticals, uh, you know, I think this is where uh, we have to, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Uh, just because I have a wild hair hypothetical thought doesn't mean I have to run with it. I need to corral that baby. How? by examining it according to the clear teaching of scripture you know and so you know that that i think is where we get clarity on those issues don't you i do yeah yeah very good yeah great yari thank you for that question great question hope that helps you out with that we have a question from eve great name uh does someone's illness take place because of sin in their life it can, but it isn't always the case. And this is where you have to be careful because people will, and you can probably share a personal experience with that, um, the idea that if you're sick, that means you sinned. Well, there are specific instances where God will use physical sickness and even death in response to sin, but there's a very specific example and in a very specific context that that kind of judgment was warranted. And, and just to kind of build this up, let me make sure we understand the Old and New Testament belong together. Why is it that God was so quote-unquote harsh with the people in the Old Testament, specifically the time of the wanderings in the wilderness, where people were dying and, you know, uh, getting struck down and smitten and all these other different things, whereas today we don't really see that all that often? Mm -hmm. Well, the reason was because they had seen the miracles. They were in a direct borderline. They were face-to-face -face with Moses, who was in a face-to-face -face relationship with God. They had seen the appearance of the Lord on Mount Sinai. They had seen the literal angel of the Lord, God before he became to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son manifesting as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, something that was literally their air conditioning system as a manifestation of God. And then upon rejection and disrespect of him, they were held accountable for a lot more. So when we see an example of someone being sick as a result of sin, it's in the context of mishandling communion and only because they could also be held to that standard. What do I mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, it says, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks, note this, judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Mm. For this reason, verse 30, many are sick and weak among you, and many sleep, a euphemism for death. For we would not judge ourselves, we would not be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we would not be condemned with the world. So this outright disrespect, the Corinthians being what they were, uh, were using communion as an opportunity to get drunk and fat and taking food away from the majority of the church members who were slaves, hadn't gotten a decent meal all week, mm. and of course were 
using something that was meant to remember the Lord as an opportunity to gratify themselves. In light of the miracles that Paul had performed to make a witness to them, God not only said, that's not cool, but you're going to be held accountable to him who much is given, much is required. See the Gospel of Luke. So the point being made is just that. In very specific circumstances, if you could note not this vague generality of, I'm sinning, therefore I'm sick, that's not fair. Firstly, to God, and secondly, to the person who may be going through that sickness, because there's also a possibility things just go wrong in this fallen world. We can note other examples, for instance, of... Was it Epaphroditus? Uh, Paul was worried about him in his letter to Philippi, and yeah. he said he almost died, yeah. but God had mercy on him and me because yeah. I would have sorrow yeah. put on, on yeah. sorrow. He didn't say it because Epaphroditus sinned. It was just he got sick. That happens to some people more than others, me awkwardly raising my hand. But the point being made is this. When we're talking to or about sickness with people, and we're out of time, so we'll maybe give the story for another day. But the point being made is there's nothing more discouraging, unhelpful, and again, borderline blasphemous than to attribute everything that goes wrong in this world to God. Yes, he is sovereign, but there is a fact of a fallen nature, and God can use poor circumstances to glorify himself and make greater dependence on him just as much as it can be an opportunity to correct us and get us back in line. But if it is that ladder, that point of correction, it's going to be very, very clear that's where you got off the line. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Paul said, my weakness, his strength is made manifest. You know, he rejoiced in tribulations, infirmities for Christ's sake. When he's weak, he's strong. Right. So there you go. So yeah, Yeah. so there's the opposite (laughs) of that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for making your answer short there. We're at the end of our show. It is possible. (laughs) (laughs) Not not likely, but possible. That's right. (laughs) Thank you for being part of Reason for Hope. Today, we're back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Thank you for your questions. More of the same tomorrow. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.